How are we all this morning? Blessed? I'm always blessed when I come into the house of the Lord. There's something significant that when we come together and we join our hearts, when we come together and, and worship together, when we hear the word of God together. And I'm just, I'm always so blessed to be in the house of the Lord. Um, I, firstly, I get to see all your smiling faces, and that's, that's something significant as well. I want to finish my story. I didn't get to finish it last week. I was reminded from many people, hey, you started this story on Rosa Parks, but what happened to this lady? So I, uh, I apologize for not, first of all, not even finishing the story. So who's familiar with the story of Rosa Parks? Just, okay, so, so, so we got about 65% and a half. Um, so Rosa Parks, let's summarize it up to the point where we got to. She was in the civil rights movement about 60 years ago. She was... Um, African-American lady, she was a seamstress. She was on her way home from work after a long day's work on the city bus in Montgomery, Alabama, in the height of the racist southern um, United States when it was at its peak. And she was presented with an option to move from her seat. And I kind of left it at that. Who knows what happened? But the message was, we need to stand firm like Rosa Parks. But did she even stand firm? She did. And so what she did is she actually did not move from her seat when she was asked to. Um, and she was actually arrested minutes later. So over a, a seat on the bus, she was arrested. Now, the fallout from her ability to stand firm was the tipping point, if you will, for the entire civil rights movement that just broke it wide open. There was a young minister that just happened to be in the area at the time with his name was Martin Luther King Jr., and that was one of the things that spurred him on, and they worked together in the future. Um, but her resolve to stand firm in the face of trials, was the starting point for an entire movement that's, that liberated and freed an entire people. We have to have an ability, we have to have a resolve to stand firm before we even start looking at what the character of God is. And I know many of you are very familiar with this, but it was just such a story that really encouraged me, the fact that she had the ability to stand firm in the face of her trials. I think the scripture, if we could put it up there, Luke, um, and it's, it's Ephesians, the chapter that we're in is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 13, and I'm specifically just looking at verse 13. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There's a reason why Paul opens up with this passage at the start. We have to be willing to stand firm in the face of whatever trial comes our way. If we're not willing to stand firm, what use is the armor going to be if we're not even in the battle? And so it's an encouraging word. Paul really encourages us to have that resolve. Bruce Billington spoke a couple weeks ago on the first three pieces of the armor of God, and I'm just going to briefly summarize the last three pieces. I'm not going to go into the, all the tenets of faith and things. I think faith, the shield of faith, and the topic that we could draw out of that could maybe be the rest of the year, and the helmet of salvation, and all that comes with salvation, and the word of God. We're just going to touch briefly on those final things. But what I did want to just kind of highlight a couple of times is, regardless of the challenges that you're going through, before we, we talk about any more specifics, let's have that resolve to stand firm through those fiery trials, whatever they may be. I've been thinking recently how far removed we are from a culture of armor. I don't know about you, but I, I think we're blessed to not be surrounded by that culture right now. Unfortunately, there's many, many nations, and if you turn on the news, you can see that armor and war is at their front door. They're only too familiar with what this concept of armor really is. I'm blessed that we don't know what the culture is of what armor represents, but that's something that I wanted to explore a little bit. Paul is said to have written Ephesians from house arrest in Rome, 
the center of the Roman Empire. He would have been very familiar with what armor was, what the culture of what it represented, as were the Ephesians. On a daily basis, he would have seen Roman soldiers, possibly even in his place of captivity. So it's kind of a different take when you think about that Paul was immersed in this culture of what armor represented and what it really did. So Paul and the Ephesians would have been really comfortable with what this represented. Armor, Bruce Billington touched on some of these points. What did it represent? It represented authority and power. But it also represented a lot more than that, though. At one point, the Roman Empire had almost over a quarter of the world's population under its rule. It represented the kingdom that it belonged to. And that's encouraging to me. A Roman soldier was not a single force or entity. He was part of an empire that had influence across a major part of the world. That armor was significant, and our armor is also significant. It also represents authority and power. But it also represents a lot more than that. It represents the kingdom that we belong to. And I know Bruce touched on that, but that that stirred my heart so much. Just as a Roman soldier armor indicated they were part of the Roman Empire, our armor indicates who we are and that we're connected to the kingdom of God. I love the way that Matthew Henry's Bible commentary sums up this passage of Scripture. And I think it's one of these slides, Luke. It starts off with, we have enemies to fight against. So Matthew Henry, in his Bible commentary, he sums this passage of Scripture up. He says, We have enemies to fight against, a captain to fight for, a banner to fight under, and certain rules of war by which we are to govern ourselves. I thought, what a wonderful picture that that sums up for us when we're looking at the armor of God. We have enemies to fight against, a captain to fight for, a banner to fight under, and certain rules of war by which we are to govern ourselves. So let's move into the final three pieces of the armor of God. And I'll just reread that, that last piece of scripture. So Ephesians six sixteen through 18. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So the first piece that we're going to be looking at is the shield of faith. And as I was contemplating, you know, just the shield of faith, and one of the reasons we showed that clip from Gladiator was just to get a sense of what does these pieces of armor even look like. Let's put ourselves in the mindset and then kind of expand upon that. So the shield was pretty big. Um, The shield was over a meter tall and just under a meter wide. So it had a huge, pretty big circumference. And then we have... There's something called a boss that was a large metal knob that was in the middle of that piece of armor. And that boss was significant because it could deflect some of the harder, the harder you know, hits that would come towards it, but it also could be in an attack capacity and knock somebody backwards with this big round metal knob. Kind of highlights Bruce's point where he said we're not just on the defensive, but we're on the offensive. So even within the shield, which you would think is a primarily defensive weapon, there was still an offensive component to that. It is interesting that Paul highlighted the shield being attributed with faith. Now, faith is, there's such a huge topic behind that. I just want to highlight a couple of things. Uh, I'm no theologian, and I didn't do, you know, I'm not a linguist and study etymology of words, but I just did a brief search of what faith in the Greek was attributed to. And so there's two key words that were highlighted there. It was trust and belief. The thing that stood out to me more than anything was the fact in a relationship when you can trust someone, there is a protection that is garnered in that regard. Trust. When you have somebody at work or you have somebody in your home that you can trust them to do something and you don't have to be there 
to follow that task up, and you know that if I'm going to assign this task somebody, to somebody, they're going to go and do that task, and they're going to do it really, really well. That's the kind of trust that was stirred in my heart when I thought about this, of what affords protection. Because in the same way, can we trust God that he's going to do what he says he's going to do? Can we trust him when he says he will never leave us and he will never forsake us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? If we start to have faith and trust God that he can do those things, even though we can't see him. Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We can't always see these things that we're talking about. But we need to have faith that God can do those things. And once we have faith in him, that faith, that belief, that knowledge of who we are protects us from the fiery darts of the evil one, which are what the, the lies of the accuser of our enemy. When he's, he's telling us things that you're not valuable, you can't do this, this place is going under, you're not able to walk in the freedom of who you are. But if we know who we are and we're connected to God, and we know that what he says is true, those fiery darts don't have any impact on us. Now, there's another piece to faith that we have to, we have to highlight. James 2 verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith alone is not enough. If it doesn't have works, faith is dead. We have to act on whatever God has called us to have faith on. If we're not putting actions towards that, we're actually missing out on the big piece of what faith is. So again, faith isn't just a singular thing that you have to believe in and something magically is going to happen. We have to put our actions with faith. That's significant. The picture of marriage comes to mind. You don't just have faith that one day that person is going to come and just be your everything. You actually have to go to the altar. You make a covenant with that person, and you move forward in a life together. In the same way, that's a huge act of faith that you're having in the other person, but you're actually acting on that as well. We need to meet God at the altar and move forward with the things that he has called us to do in faith. And that's something that we will actually be encapsulated in with the shield of faith that will help protect us as well. There is a, Luke, if you could put up the, the testudo formation for me. Many of you might be familiar with this. This was fascinating to me. It was one of the most encouraging things that I found in my entire study of the armor of God. The testudo formation is written about by Cassius Dio um, in Mark Antony's campaign in 36 B.C. So this is a formation that the Roman soldiers would use to defeat the enemy. It, it's not a defensive. This was on the attack. So what they would do, as you can see, is they would put their shields, the the soldiers in front would put their shields in front of them, and each soldier behind would put his shield above the person behind their, you know, above their head so they'd be completely covered. In the same manner, you can see the folks on the side would do the same thing, and they would be protected on the side. The picture that this created was phenomenal for me. When we overlap our faith one next to the other, specifically when they were writing about this, and you can do the research yourself, they said they specifically quoted that the flaming darts were not able to penetrate anything when they had this formation. That was significantly encouraging to me, that when not just a lone soldier, now that's significant, a, a, a soldier that has his shield is a formidable weapon person thing, but when we connect our faith, when we overlap our faith with one another, it becomes an impenetrable force where there's nothing that can come through. How important does this highlight relationship for one another, that we need each other and that we exponentially become more stronger when our faith is overlapped with one another? What a picture of the shield of faith and how significant it can be. But notice the picture that I want to highlight 
they're on a mission. They're not just in a fortress somewhere guiding their faith together. They're out. They're on doing what God called them to do, but by faith and action moving forward, they're protected from the fiery darts of the enemy. That was so encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you as well. Just a very quick point, and then we'll keep moving on through our study. I was talking with a United States Air Force officer, and I was saying, what is armor designed to do now in the military? And some of those folks that are in the military Air Force, you can probably you know, speak to this a lot more. But he was saying that the first and primary effect of what armor does is to protect us from attack, you know, and from specifically soft trauma, you know, to, to our soft tissue trauma, etc. But he said a secondary point was to protect us from shrapnel. That was, it kind of illuminated to me that it's not always the direct attacks from the enemy, but it's those pieces of shrapnel that can come and get us when we're not even expecting. How important to have the character of God on us to be ready even when the attack is not very direct. So it brings us to the next piece of our armor. The, the armor for our head is the helmet, the helmet of salvation. Now, we're probably a little bit more familiar with what a helmet is. Not too many of us go around to work with our Roman shield and our briefcase. But many of us would ride to work on your bicycle, have a motorcycle helmet. So we're confident with what a helmet does. It protects our head. In the Roman times, what would it do? It would protect your head specifically from attack from the enemy. The armor that protects our head is the helmet of salvation. Salvation is significant because it states who we are and who we belong to. When you have the helmet of salvation resting on your head, you have the knowledge that God has written your name in the book of life. You have the assurance that he called you by name and he knew you before you were in your mother's womb. Your identity and the things that God has called you to are sealed in the helmet. As salvation offers that assurance that our identity is safe in the hands of the almighty living God. Salvation also includes the process of sanctification, which is moving from one degree of glory to another. And one of the, the best ways to engage this process of sanctification is to be renewed by the transforming of our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think I switched that. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of our minds because our mind is the major battlefield of today and we can overlook it and say, I don't see myself in a battle today. I don't think this armor stuff is applicable to me. Every single one of us has a battlefield in our mind that is significant today. We need to be in the word, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds with the word of God. Just a little bit of backtracking just for a second. I would love to highlight Bruce did as well. Isaiah fifty nine seventeen. It's talking about the armor of the Lord. It's referencing the Lord when he went into battle. It says in Isaiah fifty nine seventeen, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This point, I, don't, I want to just highlight it one more time. I know it's been highlighted before. But when I was a kid, I learned all the motions to put on the armor of God. And, you know, he had a song and motions. And you'd say, do it every morning. But something that I never caught was that this was the actual armor of the Lord that he used in battle to go out and be victorious. There were some points that I heard in some of the um, discussions in the home groups that we had that, you know, we talked about his righteousness is like the mighty mountains. When we put on the breastplate of righteousness, it's not our righteousness that we're putting on. It's God's righteousness that we're putting on. His righteousness are as vast as the mighty mountains. And how secure are we when we put on his righteousness, when we rest in his truth, when we rest on the word of God, which is his word? So I just want to encourage you that it's sometimes I know that I can feel I don't have enough. It's just I'm not able to bring enough to the table at this point. 
but we actually put on the righteousness of the Lord. And that's, that's so encouraging to me as well. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds with his word, with his helmet of salvation that he himself used when he went into battle. Now, each of these things, salvation and faith, we can explore for so long. But the one thing, I just want to wrap up and, and tie these and let you guys go into your studies and, and delve into these some more, etc. But I just want to highlight a couple of these points in general. So being transformed by the renewing of our minds brings us to the last and final piece of our armor, the sword, of, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. When I came in February, we talked a whole lot about the Word of God, and that's significant. There's a lot of things that can be extrapolated from that. But this is one of the most famous attack weapons in all of history, is the sword. The Roman gladius, if we could have that slide up there, Joel. This is the gladius, this is the Roman sword. It had a name for itself that was significant. The name that it got for itself is the sword that conquered the world. That was so encouraging to me that Paul highlights us and our word of God as being the sword that conquered the world. Brothers and sisters, we have the sword that can conquer the world at our disposal to do whatever we like with, to achieve and conquer that which God has called us to do. Be confident in that. When a Roman soldier walks into a battle and he's... He's in a situation that is tough, that he doesn't know exactly what to do with. He knows that whatever he does, when he walks into that, he has the sword that conquered the world at his waist. Regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in, be encouraged that we have the sword that can conquer the world at our waist. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The, the word of God cannot be stated more, more than anything else how important it is. It goes hand in hand with the shield as well. You don't picture a, a soldier standing with a shield and no sword. In the same way, you wouldn't picture a soldier standing there without the other. They're so important that when our faith combines with the word of God, something significant happens. Can I encourage us to remember the word of God is our, soul, is our sword? A soldier doesn't regret the time that he spends practicing with his sword. A skilled swordsman actually enjoys that practice, and he repeats the same motions, and he repeats them over and over and over again. Because when it's time for battle, it's not time to learn how to use the sword. When it's time for battle, it should just be a reflex that we're ready to use so that we can automatically just move on with what God has called us to. A sword is something that not only defeats the enemy, but it removes the attack completely. A sword is what something that when you stick a sword in someone, they're probably not going anywhere after that. The same way that when we stick our sword into a situation, it's not just a defensive maneuver, but we're actually tearing down strongholds. We're tearing down those things that set itself up against us. It's easy to underestimate the power of our swords. The sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation are all significant. There's many, many things that we could talk about. But more than anything, I just want to highlight that this is putting on the character of God. Be encouraged that if we put on his character and we use his word to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to move forward with the things that God has called us to do, it is significant. There is something that is so important that we need to be equipped if we're to go out and take the world and take the kingdom of God 
and bring people into his love and into his faithfulness and into his joy, we have to be equipped so that we can stand strong. Our words have the power of life and death, as does a sword. We have discussed how it's, very, it's God's very own armor. So let us take up the sword of the Lord and move into the things that he's called us to in our lives and our workplace. I'm going to be wrapping up very briefly, but I want Jenny Harris to come and share a poem that she wrote about the armor of God. I'll summarize a couple more points, and we'll have Rachel come up and wrap up our meeting as well. Um, I'm a very practical person, so these are just my thoughts on how the armor of God might practically look and be worked out in my life and in your life. It's called My Armor of God. My helmet protects my vulnerable mind, what I think, how I process, what I see. It reminds me I'm Christ's, I'm no longer blind, and I can trust God to give clarity. The girdle of truth defends against lies, false false reports, accusations, fear of man. It's where the sword of the Spirit resides, God's word, his power to stand. My heart is kept pure when wrongful desires under my breastplate are placed. God can make my heart burn with righteous fire in every situation I face. Faith is my shield as I fight the good fight when the enemy tries to get me to fail. Disappointment, regrets can be set aright when I trust that God's plan will prevail. I can live my life's journey walking in peace when I trust and hold on to God's hand. May my feet never tire and journey not cease till I've walked the path that you've planned. Amen. Some final thoughts to seal our time in the, in the armor of God. I've been so encouraged by this study. Some things have been illuminated to me that I've never seen um, before when talking about the armor of God. And I, I so enjoyed being in our own small, small group. Ben Polson just has some jewels of wisdom that he shared with us and Ines Conway and just some of the conversation that we had is significant. But I think that even highlights some of the principles of the armor of God, that when we come together, we share our faith, how much more protected are we. When we come and use the word of God, it, it is like a, a sword that pierces to the vision of our, of our hearts and of, of our marrow very much to the very core of who we are and hopefully can change who we are. The armor is not solely for ourselves, as we saw in the Testudo formation, that when you come together in relationship, when you come together and share your faith, how impenetrable are the attacks of the enemy? It, it wraps up the scripture in Ephesians 6 and 18. It states, pray for all saints. Prayer is a significant connector to the entire armor of God, that we need to engage in battle for one another so that we are protected, so that we do feel protection from one another. Our, our battles vary for each person here. Each one of us does have a battle to fight. Timothy urges us to fight the good fight of the faith. I wonder if many of us today can have a new awareness and appreciation of the power of God's very own armor and use it to the fullest potential as we pursue and take up arms against the kingdom of darkness in our own lives, in our family lives, in our workplace, and on into our community. There are two conflicting kingdoms, one of light and one of darkness. Paul instructs us to be intentional in our fight against the kingdom of darkness. We could have that very last slide. Romans 13 verse 12 says this, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Bless you guys.